Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good evening. How are you tonight? Oh, you're... You haven't heard it yet. It might not be very good. We're in uh, the book of Exodus tonight, chapter 15. If you turn in your Bibles, I trust you brought your Bibles. After all, this is a Bible study. Very good. So to bring your Bibles, good thinking. Good thinking. I want you to follow along verse by verse. So we're going to be studying a little bit tonight about music and a song, the very first song recorded in Scripture. It's a song of redemption. And uh, because I think it's an important chapter, we're only going to cover chapter 15 of Exodus tonight and zero in on some very important thoughts. Now, uh, Wednesday nights are a little bit different than our weekend. What I mean by that is, um, whereas typically we ask people to turn their phones off um, for a Bible study, this one, however, we ask you to turn your phones on, not to receive phone calls or not to have them ring uh, or not to text your friends or play Angry Birds or anything like that, but to to text a question in. If you have a question, this is an interactive Bible study where you can text, and uh, there it is. There you can text your question to dot org, or if you uh, have just numbers on your phone, three six eight six seven four, and in the body of the text or keyword, expound ABQ, um, and then uh, you put a space. After Expound ABQ, and then fire off your question, we'll get it. I can look at it and say, I don't know the answer to that. So then we'll move on to another one. (laughs) Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for such an enthusiastic group of worshipers. And we have come to worship you, and we demonstrate that by the songs we sing, but also our willingness to sit for the next hour and give you our bodies as living sacrifices. And part of our worship is the willingness to listen to the voice of the Spirit of God as He works through the Word of God. And so we submit ourselves to the principles that we are going to discover in this chapter of your Word, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the second book of Moses. And we pray, Lord, that even as the New Testament quoted so often from this very section and the apostles referred to it, I pray that it would become familiar territory to us, that we would become people steeped in truth, not just a few psalms here and there and a few New Testament principles, but the whole counsel of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so imagine... Um, a station wagon or a sedan with mom and dad and luggage on top of the roof or in the trunk, packed in the back seat with kids, let's say under the age of 10, aimed down the road on a 500-mile road trip. Then times that by about 1,000 or 10,000, and you have a little indication of what it was like for Moses traveling for 40 years in the wilderness with two and a half to three million people, many of whom loved to complain, and we're going to get a little hint of that tonight. So the wonder of the deliverance 
from bondage in Egypt, the wonder of that miracle will become eclipsed by the wearisomeness of the journey and you're going to hear them complain because of it. But before they complain, there's a worship song that occupies a good portion of this chapter. This is a party they're throwing in the desert. It's a celebration for the deliverance that God has wrought upon His people. It's an incredible, credible story. Now, just uh, for recall, if you remember, God was leading them, and God was leading them through a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. And God had them not go the direct route, which is the way north along the seacoast, the way of the Philistines, but He takes them south and away from the promised land. He'll turn them back to the right place. But he, he, he leads them into effectively a trap, a cul-de-sac, where in front of them is water. On either side is wilderness and mountainous terrain, impassable. Behind them are the Egyptians who box them in, close them in, so they're in a trap. They're in a tight place. But God was leading them. And so we learned that when we're in tight places that we learn certain lessons. Let me just give you a few of them by way of reminder. Number one, tight places will reveal your character and your relationship to God or lack thereof. Tight places are very revealing about yourself. If you remember last time in chapter 14, when they're brought into this very tight spot, the children of Israel start their complaining And they said something along the lines of, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? Remember, we told you, leave us alone. For it would have been better if we were under the servitude of the Egyptians than to die out here in the desert. So the tight spot revealed their lack of faith. Immediately, Moses started speaking and he said, stand still and see the salvation of God. The Lord will fight for you, but you just stand still. So the tight spot reveals the faith of Moses as well as the faithlessness of the children of Israel. So tight places do that. They reveal the character of our hearts and our relationship to God or lack thereof. Number two, tight places remind us that God doesn't punch our time clock. God's on his own schedule. He doesn't work for us. We're his servants. He's not our servant. So whenever we're brought into a tight spot and we think, God, why don't you do something? This would be a perfect time for you to do this, this, or that. And God says, whatever, and does what he wants to do. Now, he does open up the Red Sea. He does close up the Red Sea and fix the enemy problem, the Egyptian problem. But he does it on his own timetable, according to his own perfect timing element. And we have to remember that. Number three, tight places will foster dependence upon God. You know, when you're in a a difficult situation, sometimes there's no way to look but up. So they can't look ahead of them because there's water. They can't look behind them because there's Egyptians. They can't look to the right or left because of the wilderness situation. So they have to look up. And effectively, that's what Moses does in chapter 14. Hardships will get your attention like nothing else. And I know that you could tell me stories in your own life. 
Yeah, I remember I was just sort of cruising along, going to church every week. And then I went into this heavy trial and boy, did God use that in my life to revolutionize me. That's typically the testimony. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He shouts to us in our pain. Pain, said C.S. Lewis, is God's megaphone to rouse the deaf world. So all of those things happen in times of trial or hardship. Well, after they're delivered, chapter 14, toward the end of the chapter, and they see their enemy lying dead on the seashore, and they're safely across the Red Sea, then they write a hit song. They go to the recording studio in the desert, so to speak, and at least it's recorded for us to read it. It's the first song mentioned in the Bible, and it's a song of redemption. Now, typically, when people are experiencing um, deep emotion or even deep distress or excitement, they often find it best to express it, if they have the gift, like Dominic, artistically, poetry, or writing a song. Uh, This week I went to our Expound ABQ uh, uh, Facebook, our website on Facebook, and I noticed that one of the challenges that we put out to you who subscribe to that is to write your own song of worship or a few verses. And I was cruising through that to uh, read some of the things you wrote. They were beautiful expressions of how God had worked in your life. And one person said, look, I'm not good at this, but I do want to thank God for this, that, and the other thing. But some of you actually dared to write a little song or poetry of worship. So here's a song that Moses sings. Apparently he writes it and the rest of the people of Israel learn it and they sing it together. Then his sister Miriam is going to do a little dance with some of the other women in Israel toward the end of this chapter. Now there's a a text of scripture that I uh, referred to several weeks back, actually found in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen gives his testimony before the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And this is what he said about Moses. He said, Moses, this is Acts chapter 7, Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. I've always wondered at that text, because as I read the story, Moses was afraid of using his words. Remember, he said, God, why are you choosing me? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I don't like to talk. Get Aaron to talk. I don't want to do this job. So when I read of Moses' experience before Pharaoh and him not wanting to speak, and yet Stephen says he was mighty in word and in deed, I go, so where did that happen? And I can conclude it happens right here. He probably may not have been good at extemporaneously speaking in front of a crowd or in front of a king, but he could sure write poetry. And if you want further evidence of that, look at Psalm 90. It was penned by Moses. It says, Psalm 90, the words of Moses, the man of God, he writes that. And it's beautiful poetry. And so here too, Moses writes a beautiful song that he teaches to the children of Israel. Can I just give you a a little word about poetry, Hebrew poetry? Hebrew poetry uh, didn't rhyme words, but it rhymed thoughts. It's called parallelism. You know, we go, uh, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. You know, we have that kind of cadence and that kind of silly little rhyming at the end of of poetry. In Hebrew, they would rhyme thoughts or contrast thoughts. And so 
Um, this Hebrew parallelism comes in a few different forms. Follow me here. There's something called synthetic or synonymous parallelism. That's where you state a thought, and then you state another thought that sounds almost like the first one, but just a little different. It's rhyming the thought. For example, if I were to say, Lenya is an amazing woman, which is true, by the way, and then I were to say, um, the greatest among women is Lenya. You'd say, well, you sort of already said that in the first part. I did, but I stated it just a little bit differently, and I amplified it. That's how Hebrew poetry is written. So when you read Psalms, or you read poetic sections, and you read even this, you find some of that parallelism. Verse 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And by the way, as we're going through this tonight, we're going to see some characteristics of true worship. Since this is the first worship song written on redemption, we'll notice some of those principles. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. This brings up the very first principle I want you to see about worship. Number one, worship is a response. Worship is a response. Notice what the first word is. It's the word. Are you reading it? First word of the sentence is. No, it says then. Verse one says then. We're reading the same verse, right? The first word of the sentence in chapter 15, verse one is. Good. Way to go, class. Then. That's the first word. Then they sang. When is then? After God delivered them. After God opened up the Red Sea. And after the Red Sea swallowed up the enemies of Israel. Then they sang this song. Now remember, while they were in Egypt, they had no song. They only had sighing. They had groaning. They had crying. They cried out to the Lord. They weren't singing any song of worship. Back in chapter 2, we read, They sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and God heard their groaning, sighing, crying, groaning. Now, God delivers them. Then they sang. It was a response after God delivered them. So God turns their sighing into singing. And why? Well, specifically, if I can add, because of the blood of a lamb and the power of God. Because of the blood of a lamb that was put on the doorposts and lintels and by the power of God in those plagues of Egypt, now they're singing. Not sighing, they're singing. Now, worship is a response. I've given this to you before, but it bears repeating at this time. I want to define for you worship from a biblical perspective. Here's the biblical definition of worship, and I'm going to give it to you in four parts. Number one, worship is a response to God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. We love Him because He first loved us. Worship is God works or acts, then we respond. So that's number one. It's a response. Number two, worship is the proper response to God. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. It just makes sense, based upon who God is and what He has done, that you respond by worship. 
So worship is a response to God. Worship is the right or proper response to God. Here's the third component of it. Worship is the proper response to God that comes from the heart. Has to be heartfelt. Jesus said the Father is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. It has to be real. You have to mean it. You can't just go, sing a little few words on a screen. you got to mean it from the heart. So worship is a response. It's the proper response. It's the proper response from the heart. And here's the fourth component of this first part. Worship, true worship is the proper response to God from the heart whereby we place God above everything and everyone else. And that is the full definition biblically of worship. Worship is the proper response to God from the heart whereby we place God above everyone and everything else. Jesus himself said, The first and greatest commandment is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That's true worship. That means God comes first before hobbies, before recreation, before television, before sports, before your children. God is number one. Jesus even said this, if you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. So number one, worship is a response to God. Now we have a text that came in with a question. I'll show it to you and see if you can try this out. Can you actually sing Moses and Miriam's songs? Are you asking if I can personally do it? Well, not knowing... They didn't give us like, well, this is a 3-4 beat and it's in the key of C or G or A minor. They didn't do that. So I guess you could if you'd like. Um, yes, you could. You would have to sort of come up with your own melody and uh, tr- sort of transpose uh, from uh, the parallelism of the Hebrew. But yeah, it could be done technically. But uh, will I do it? No. If you're asking, will I stand here and sing you this song? Of course not. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Now this brings up the second characteristic of worship in this first worship song. Worship is focused. Worship is about Him. In these 18 or 19 verses that comprise this song of Moses in the 15th chapter, 12 times the word Lord is used because it's all about the Lord. It's all about Him. It's interesting that in the deliverance across the Red Sea, the instrument that God used was Moses. Moses was the representative of the Lord. God said, Moses, stretch out your hand, stretch out your rod over the sea. So Moses participated in this. But Moses is not mentioned once in this song. Now that makes sense. Because worship, true worship, is focused. It's theocentric. It's God-centered, not anthropocentric, not man-centered. Moses is the instrument, but you don't praise the instrument. You praise the Lord 
for the instrument. He could have used the instrument, but the source is the Lord. This is what it would be like. If a doctor performed an operation on you and it was successful, he may have used a scalpel. He might have used forceps, retractor, a number of different instruments and people around him. After the operation, when the doctor came in to check on you, you wouldn't say, hey, doctor, would you show me the scalpel? Uh, yeah, why? Well, show me the scalpel you use for the operation and the retractor and all those instruments. Bring them in. Now, imagine how foolish you would look if you were to look at the scalpel and the other instruments and go, you are so wonderful. I praise and exalt you, scalpel. It's like the doctor would go, hello, I did the operation. They were instruments in my hands merely. You get the point. To praise Moses would be superfluous. He was just the tool. Yes, he was used mightily of God, but he was only the instrument. So he's not mentioned. It's all focused upon God. And notice it says here, he, the Lord, has become my salvation. I've told you before in Exodus, you'll see it throughout the Bible. This miracle becomes the mega miracle, the mega sign for the Jewish people throughout their history. Even Moses' father-in-law, when we get to it in a few chapters, is going to see Moses and give glory to the Lord, saying, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, has delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh. Later on in the book of Joshua, the Gibeonites who pretend to travel from a far distance will come up and say, we have heard of the fame of him and how he has delivered you. So this song is well written. It's focused on the Lord. And that we should be reminded of that. When, um, when a time of what we call public worship and song before a Bible study, before church, we don't do it so that latecomers can find a parking space and mosey their way in just for the Bible study. It's a time that we set aside that's for God. It's for the Lord. Our focus is on Him. We're telling Him He's awesome. We're telling Him we love Him and why. That's why I've loved that song we used to sing, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, because it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. The late Dr. G. James Kennedy said these words about worship. Most people think of the church as a drama with the minister as the chief actor and God as the prompter and the laity as the critic. What is actually the case is the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, and God is the critic. So it's all for the Lord. And Moses was right in focusing it on God. Verse 3, he says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name by the name I am that I am, which constitutes that tetragrammaton we told you about, or Yahweh. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Now, this is poetic language, and you'll notice for you that are wordsmiths or have an English background, that they employ simile. You know, simile means that something is like or similar to something else. So, example, in verse 5, they sank to the bottom like a stone. Later on in verse 8, they will say the water stood up like 
a heap. And in verse 10, the enemies or the Egyptians, they sank like lead. So all of that is part of the the poetic language that's employed. Verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Now, why does the Bible speak of God's right hand? It's pretty simple. The right hand typically, typically is the arm of strength, only because most people are right-handed. No slight to you if you're left-handed, and so your left hand is a hand of strength. Generally speaking, in the world, most people are right-handed. So to speak of the right hand of the Lord is to speak of the, the dominant hand or the strong hand. That's the idea of the power or the might of the Lord. Your right hand has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. There's more poetic language I draw your attention to. Right hand is one. Blast of your nostrils is another. Does that mean God has a nose and goes, because that's what's employed here. No. These, we've told you what these are before. They're called anthropomorphisms or the description of God in the form of a man-like attribute. It's simply so we can understand what God is like. God is transcendent. God is other than humanity. So the only way humans can get a good idea of what God is like is to use human terms. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth. The hand of the Lord or the right hand. The Bible speaks about underneath the Lord's wings are protection. It doesn't mean God is a chicken and flaps his wings. These are simply human terms to describe attributes of God. So probably what Moses is referring to is that strong east wind it mentioned in chapter 14 that came and made the Red Sea stand up like walls of water on either side. But here it's described as the blast of God's nostrils. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? This brings up a third characteristic of worship in this first worship song of redemption. And this is it. Worship is exclusive. True worship is the worship of the true God. Notice the wording. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Do you remember some of the gods of Egypt that we talked about? Those are the ones that were targeted in those plagues in Egypt. There was Amon-Ra, the sun god. There was Heka or Heket, the frog goddess. There was Wadjet, that god that was depicted as a serpent that was judged. There was the god Hapi, the god of the Nile. There was Apis, the bull, a god of strength or depicted as a bull, bull-like strength. Keep that in mind because the children of Israel will make a golden calf. In other words, they're 
shaping something they were familiar in seeing while they were in Egypt. Apis, the god, the bull god, or the calf. Those were all the gods in the pantheon of Egypt. What Moses was saying is, all of those gods and goddesses put together can't even hold a candle to the true and living God. That's true worship. It's very exclusive. Who is like you, O God? Here's the truth. Here's the principle. God does not want any competition. And you know why? Because there is no competition. All the other gods and goddesses are false. They're fake. They're not real. They're concocted by man and woman. So God is very exclusive and he makes no apologies when he says, listen to what he says, the Lord your God is a jealous God. Some people read that and go, I can't believe it says he's jealous. <laughs> really, you can't? Have you ever loved somebody? If you love somebody, there's going to be a godly, holy, righteous jealousy. If a husband loves his wife, he better be jealous. Oh, my husband's such a jealous husband. Good! That means he's a good husband. He didn't want to share his wife with anybody. He's jealous over her. And God says, I'm a jealous God. He wants no competition because there is no competition. And in the Bible, we're called the bride of Christ. So our singular devotion, our singular worship should be to the Lord. He wants no substitutes. He doesn't want you to worship anything or anyone else but Him. You're not to worship angels. In the book of Revelation, John fell down and started worshiping an angel. And the angel stopped and said, Whoa, whoa, time out, dude. Paraphrasing it. Don't worship me. (laughs) Worship the Lord. Don't worship angels. Don't worship Mary. Don't worship John Calvin. Don't worship a pastor. Worship God. Worship is exclusive. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. That's in a worship song. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Now notice this little phrase in verse 13, the people whom you have redeemed. This brings up a fourth characteristic of worship. Here it is, worship is relational If God is the Redeemer, then the people that He buys back, that's what the word redemption means, are the redeemed. If He is the Lord, then those people are His servants. So, in true worship, there's a relationship. Lord, servant. Redeemer, redeemed. And by this, ownership is implied. Rulership is implied. Here's the deal. When you came to Christ when what we call you gave your life to Jesus, picture giving the pink slip, the ownership slip of your life to Him. You didn't say, I'm going to put a bumper sticker on my car that says God is my co-pilot. No, He won't be anybody's co-pilot. He's taken over the wheel. You're giving Him the car, in fact. You're saying, drive wherever you want to go. I'll watch. I'll be a part of it. But you drive. You own me. You're in charge. You've probably heard of that famous childhood story of the little boy who was baking with his mother one day. They were baking gingerbread men, and the little boy fashioned a cute little gingerbread man with eyes and a nose and a little smile, and 
put icing on it. And as soon as he did, the little gingerbread man came alive, looked up at the boy, jumped off of the kitchen table, ran out the door, ran down the street, and the gingerbread man was lost. So the boy went looking around town and from window to window to window. Finally, he looked in the window of a bakery and he saw his gingerbread man that he had made. So he walked in and goes, excuse me, sir, the gingerbread man that's front and center in the window, that's mine. I made it. I made it just hours ago. It ran away from me, but it's mine. Well, the owner said, I'm sorry, little boy. I don't know who you are. But if you want that gingerbread man, it'll cost you 25 cents. Little boy, oh, no, no, you don't understand. It's mine to begin with. Just give it over. And so the little boy punched. No, he didn't do that. So the little boy, (laughs) sorry, reached in his pocket, coughed up the quarter, took the gingerbread man and went home. And the little boy looked at that gingerbread man and said, you were mine because I made you. But now you're mine, really mine, because I bought you. That's redemption. God says to Israel, you're mine because I made you, but I have redeemed you with all of those plagues, all of those judgment, and this Red Sea episode. Now you're mine because I bought you. And that's the relationship we have in worship with God. Paul reminds us, for you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And that's the redemption price of the blood of Christ. Go back to verse 13 real quickly. Notice, you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Now that's Moses singing this song. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Perhaps, just perhaps, because there's, there's a reference of this twice in this first song of redemption. Perhaps what Moses is referring to prophetically is the fact that God is going to set up in Shiloh and later on in Jerusalem a place where he's going to dwell, his holy habitation. Now, I'm throwing that out to you because that's exactly what happens. In Psalm 76, the psalmist writes that Zion was God's choice for his habitation. I was reading, in fact, in Second Chronicles 7, uh, early this morning for my devotional time, When Solomon dedicated the temple, the Lord spoke to him and said, Indeed, I have chosen this place and this house, the temple, for the place of my habitation, which would be Mount Zion. I'll tell you, one of the coolest things is to stand in Jerusalem, and I'm going to be there in May again for a conference, and to stand on Mount Zion and to realize all along God selected this as the place where he was going to dwell among his people. Verse 14 The Lord will hear, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Remember, they're right up the coast. They're the ones that will become the enemies of Israel later on in the Davidic kingdom. They're going to hear about it and be afraid. Uh, We have a text question. I want you just to see it, and then I'm not going to answer it. No, I'm going to answer it, but not right away. I'm going to answer it as we go. Here's the question. To give praise to God, should a person lift up their hands? Should they? Some are saying yes. Some are saying, I'm not going to answer that. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. That's actually one of my points in a little bit. But just keep that in mind. 
Verse 14 again, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia upon the northern coast. Then the chiefs of Edom, that's now east of the Dead Sea, east of Canaan, the land they're going to, will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, also east of Canaan, trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Stop right there. In this song, Moses recognized that in the future, God is not only preparing the children of Israel for the place called Canaan, but he's also preparing their enemies by making their enemies afraid because of what God has done in redemption. Now, do you remember, it's in Numbers 13, so unless you've read the Bible, you wouldn't remember this because we haven't gotten there yet, but I assume you have or you know the story. In Numbers 13, Moses sends out 12 spies. We've made reference to this last week or the week before. Um, Ten of those spies come up with a bad report, right? And two spies, Joshua and Caleb, come up with a good report. You know the story. So Joshua and Caleb said, let's just go in and take the land. God gave us the land. Let's go in by faith. We're able to take it. But 10 of the spies said, we can't take the land. We're grasshoppers in our sight and in their sight. They look at us as midgets. Those guys are giants. So that word, that bad report, causes a wave of disbelief and discouragement to sweep through the entire camp of Israel. So they don't go take the land. They wait another 38 years, 40 years altogether. They're wandering in the wilderness because they didn't take the land. And they didn't take the land because the people said, we're grasshoppers in their sight. We have to wait 40 years before we really get the truth and listen to the truth. 40 years later, children of Israel come in by the way of Jericho. You know the story, they cross the river. Jericho is the first city. They talk to a harlot who lives in Jericho by the name of Rahab the harlot. And she says, oh, didn't you know the fear of you has fallen upon us and all of the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. The terror of you has fallen upon us and we're all afraid because we heard what God has done with you. So those 10 spies were not right, were they? They said, oh, we're we're grasshoppers in their sight. Meanwhile, the inhabitants of the land, including the giants, were going, man, the children of Israel, we're afraid of those guys. We're terrified of them. That was the real report. Years wasted in wandering because they didn't live by faith. Verse 16, the song continues, fear and dread will fall on them. And it did. They seemed to forget the song as... The story went on. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. And I believe that's a prophecy of Mount Zion. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. 
So that's the song. That's the worship song. There's more principles of worship, but that the song is technically done. Now it says, Miriam, the prophetess, and by the way, this is the first time the word is given to somebody, and it's given to Miriam. She's called a prophetess. Is she the only one called a prophetess in the Bible? No, there's many more. Deborah in um, Judges chapter 5 will be called a prophetess. Another woman in the Old Testament named Hulda is called a prophetess. In the New Testament, a woman by the name of Anna is in the temple. She's called a prophetess. And then there's the four virgin daughters of Philip in the book of Acts who also prophesied. So they're prophetesses as well. But this is the first time this designation is used and it's used of Miriam. Notice the sister of Aaron, who is also the brother of Moses. So she's the sister of Moses. Took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Here's a fifth characteristic of worship in this song. Worship is vocal. Worship is vocal. Verse 1, it says, Moses says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And in verse 21, Miriam says, Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. You know, the Bible never tells God's people to sing perfectly to the Lord. Aren't you glad for that? Nor does the Bible say, sing harmoniously to the Lord. It just says, sing joyfully. In fact, it didn't even say that. It just says, make a joyful noise. Anybody can do that. You say, well, I can't sing. Good. Get loud. Because there's a psychology. If you're sitting next to somebody in a worship service and they, ah, they start singing on sort of like a, a duck that's been shot. Well, what happens when, when you hear somebody sing who doesn't carry a great tune, but they're just making a joyful noise into the Lord? Why that's good is you and others around you will want to sing louder to drown out the dissonant noise. So what will happen is the volume of worship rises up. Because you're singing a joyful song or you're making a joyful noise unto the Lord. See, the question is not, do you have a voice? Here's the real question. Do you have a song in your heart? Because if you're a Christian, you should have a song in your heart. And worship should be a happy experience. Whether you feel it or not, I don't feel like singing. So what? Is the Lord still worthy? whether you feel like it or not? Is the Lord still good, whether you feel like it or not? Then tell Him that. Ascribe that to Him. Sing a joyful noise unto the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the fact that bars have what they call happy hour. Yet, I don't think they're really happy. If you were to go inside, I don't think they go, Hey, great! Uh, I think they're probably pretty miserable at happy hour. But I believe that during our worship time Wednesday night or Saturday night or Sunday morning, pick any of the services, that ought to be happy hour. God's people should be happy because we worship a wonderful, glorious, and happy God, said Charles Spurgeon. And that should be resident in our worship. So worship is vocal. There's another characteristic. This is number six now, also based on what we just read. Worship is physical. 
Worship is physical. It includes the body. Somebody asked me a question about raising of hands. Well, the Bible says, I would that all men pray lifting up holy hands. That's one of the physical responses to God. Because when you lift up hands, though you're not mandated to do it, it's more a position of the heart than it is the body. However, the lifting of the hands is a welcome sign as well as a sign of surrender. You know, like in the movies, they hold a gun up to you and say, stick up your hands. Because when your hands are up, you can't be preoccupied with anything else. You can't be texting a friend. Hold on a minute. I know you want to rob me. Just a minute. I want to just... I'm sorry. Stick your hands up. You're surrendering to me. And so it is with the Lord. We surrender to Him. We welcome Him. It's part of the... One of the ways we worship. With our hands. Here they're dancing. Now that brings up a question that I have had asked... Well, dancing? Can Christians dance? I have people ask me that. Here's my typical response. Well, some can and some can't. (laughs) Enough said on that. Here's the greater point. The reason worship is physical or including our physical bodies is because worship, like true love, can't be passive. True love has to be demonstrated, has to be active. I guarantee you if a husband asked his wife or girlfriend to marry him and become his wife and just said, honey, I love you. I'm never going to say that to you ever again. Just believe that now by faith. And he never said it again. Moreover, he never demonstrated it in any acts of kindness or servitude. It would be a very miserable marriage and probably not last very long. Because true love is never passive It must be active, and it involves the body. Whether it's here dancing before the Lord because they're throwing a redemption party, they're so excited, they're just going around the camp, or it's the raising of hands, or it's kneeling, Psalm 95, come let us worship and bow down, or it's even standing in worship. That's one of the responses according to Psalm 135. Uh, Those servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. There's a number of physical responses. Here's a seventh characteristic of worship based on what we just read. Worship is musical. Go back to our verses. Notice that she went out, Miriam, after her, or they went out, these other women, after her with timbrels. What's a timbrel? It's a hand drum. A hand drum or a tambourine. It's just something you beat, and with keeping the beat, then you dance to it. Music has always been a part of of worship from the Old Testament through the New Testament. I know there's controversy in some churches, a musical instrument versus a cappella. I'm not going to get into that. I honestly think it's a lame argument and easily overthrown. I'm just going to say that worship, music, has always been a part of God's people since God's people existed on the earth from the book of Genesis onwards. And if you read the Old Testament in the moving of the ark or in certain battles or in feast days or in the temple of Jerusalem, there were the choirs of David and the Levites and the musicians who were paid to lead the people in worship. There's Psalm 150, which says, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, praise him with stringed instruments and flutes, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with clashing cymbals. All of those are musical instruments. One of my favorite quotes on music, though I don't agree with everything he said, was Martin Luther, and he said this, Next to theology, I give to music the highest place and honor. 
Music is the art of the prophets and the only art that can claim the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents that God has given us. And then he said this, If any man despises music, for him I have no liking. (laughs) For music is a gift and grace of God, not the invention of men. So music, worship, is musical. That's the seventh characteristic. There's one more as we close the chapter. But we have a question about worship. It was texted in, and we'll throw that up on the screen. Thank you for the question. How often should we worship? Well, the real answer is you should never stop. Your whole life should be an act of worship, and that's actually going to lead me to my final point. Worship shouldn't only be confined to a place or an event. You remember in the New Testament, the book of John, there was a woman at the well of Samaria. Jesus came and engaged a conversation with her. And as she started discovering this guy knows about my secret past, she started talking about worship. She wanted to deflect off of herself and talk about the disagreements people have about God. And she said, you Jews say Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. We worship here in this temple on Mount Gerizim. Jesus said, woman, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship, for the Father is seeking those to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. You know, worship can be an event, does include music as we gather together, but the way I figure, how you do publicly is determined by how you do privately. If you're not a private worshiper, if you never worship on your own before God, chances are you're going to come and say, Okay, whatever, I don't get it. I'll let them sing and I'll just sort of watch. If, if that's not a part of you, the fabric of your daily life. However, if the pump is already primed and you're doing that during the week, it's a part of your daily devotions. When you get together, it's like unloosing the dam. The faucet is turned on and... It's just a continuation of what has always been going on in your heart. I know the Bible says pray without ceasing. And I think part of that is worship. It's an ongoing, progressive thing. Verse 22, we want to finish up the chapter. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. Sure they did. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Okay, the wilderness of Shur, if you can picture or if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you have the Sinai Peninsula, which looks like an arrowhead or a V, a wedge. It's the northwestern part of of the Sinai Peninsula, as you leave the land of Egypt, Goshen, and you go eastward, that big empty space is called the Wilderness of Shur. There's no water there. Now, in Egypt, they had water, the Nile River. Once you get out of the Nile River Delta, and you get into the Wilderness of Shur, the annual rainfall in that desert is maybe one inch per year. One inch per year. So there are two and a half, three million people out in the wilderness, no water, away from the Nile River. It's a setup for disaster, right? So it says there is no water. Verse 23. Now when they came to Mara, Mara means bitter, and you'll see why. They could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara, 
bitter. Thank you for that, Moses. By the way, that place is given a name today, present day, that area of Mara is called Ein Hawara, and the waters are still salty or brackish. Verse 24, And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Stop. Did God lead them here? Yes, He did. God led them here, and they complained. God sent ten judgments against Egypt for Israel to deliver them, and they complained. God opened up the Red Sea and killed their enemies, and they complained. God led them here to a place where there's no water, and they complained. Now, I have a question for you. Do you believe that God can lead you into difficult places? That it's by the hand of God that you're in that difficult place? You believe that? Okay, think about what you're saying yes to, because it is true. Jesus made you a promise, though you may not have this one underlined in yellow in your Bible. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You know what a shock that is to some new believers? Unfortunately, believers are sort of primed after they come to Christ, and life's going to be really good now, and and, and it's true, it's going to be wonderful, but God's going to lead you into some very interesting places. God might lead you to a place of Mara, a place of bitterness. So what happens to new believers, and I say it's a shock, is typically what happens is, I call it a bubble. We come into this little bubble of bliss after we come to Christ. Life is it's good. It makes sense. I get it. I'm so happy now. Life is wonderful. I'm going to tell everybody about it. And that's that wonderful, by God's grace, honeymoon phase of your relationship with Him. That bubble of bliss. But again, by God's grace, he wants to come along and pop the bubble. Because if he doesn't pop the bubble, what's going to happen, besides you being crazy your whole life, (laughs) and give people the wrong impression, is you're going to learn to live by sight rather than by faith. He wants you to learn to live by faith, so that when you come to a bitter place where there's no water and God leads you there, you can say, huh, God led me here. Don't know why. I'm pretty thirsty but I trust Him. I trust Him in the bad times as well as in the good times. Remember Job? Lost his health. Lost his kids. Remember Job's wife? Here's her godly counsel. Curse God and die. Thank you very much. What did he do? He fell down, tore his robe, and he worshipped. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he realized, I don't get it, but God led me here. God led me tomorrow to this bitter place. And God will lead you in your life. Maybe you've already been to a Mara or several of them. Your Mara might be a little grave in the local cemetery. Your Mara may be a disease that you're in the middle of or you've just dealt with. A place of bitterness that God led you to. Now, this very occasion is what Paul the Apostle uses as an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's a portion of it. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. But don't you murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written about for our admonition on whom the ends of the age had come. Let's go to verse 25. So he cried out to the Lord. Good man, Mo. And the Lord showed him a tree. And he cast it into the waters. The waters were made sweet. There he made a statute, not a statue, a statute or a decree and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them. And he said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I am Yahweh Rapha, it says in Hebrew, the Lord who heals you. Unfortunately, some have read this verse and read into this verse misinformation, saying, if you're one of God's children and you're trusting the Lord, like he, and, and this is what they say they were being promised, a disease-free life. So that if you obey the Lord, you're a child of God, you never have to be sick with any disease. And I've heard this verse quoted time and time again. What is the Lord referring to? It's simple. He's referring to the diseases of the ten plagues that fell upon Egypt in judgment. And some of those diseases or some of those judgments brought physical maladies to their bodies, like the boils and many other things that they faced. That's what he's referring to, the plagues. But I've seen the tragedy of what is called the health and wealth teaching, that if you believe in God and you trust in Jesus, other people in the world get sick, but none of these diseases will fall upon you if by faith you claim it and you name it. And I've seen the tragic fallout of that horrible, unbiblical teaching. I had a couple who came to our church, brokenhearted. Brokenhearted for two reasons. Number one, their baby girl died recently. And they were so beat up, not only because of that, but because they belonged to one of these churches who said, let me tell you something, your child may be sick, but if you really believe, your child will not get any sicker and will come back and you'll have her for the rest of your life. No disease will come upon her. When that baby died, the church ostracized her, saying, well, she died because you didn't have enough faith. So now they're brokenhearted because they've been ostracized by their church for not having enough faith as well as the death of their daughter. How tragic. I remember a brother years ago who came up after a service. He had a broken ankle. He was in a cast. He came up on crutches. And I noticed him and I said, Hey, I'd love to pray for you. And I'll pray that... uh," He goes, Oh, let me just tell you. I'm healed. (laughs) Excuse me? I've been healed. By faith, I'm healed. I go, you, you, you have a broken ankle? No, I won't confess that. I'm healed. I said, well, then do me a favor. Don't tell anybody that God healed you. Because they're going to think he does pretty crummy work if that's the result. If God heals you, you're not going to be hobbling around on crutches with a cast. You'll be running, leaping, and praising God like the man in the book of Acts. So when it says none of these diseases, it's simple what it's speaking about in context. And that is what has gone on. Then they came to Elim, seven miles south of Mara. If you can find Mara, you can find Elim. Where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, an oasis in the desert. And so they camped there 
by the waters. I love that. The trials were there. God led them. But here we see God knew where he was leading them. He led them eventually to a place of refreshment and oasis. And if you're in a trial tonight, there's an Elim after your Mara. There's a place of refreshment. There's an oasis coming. You're not going to be at this Mara, this place of bitterness forever. He knows where he's taking you and he'll bring you to this place of refreshment. Now I want to close with number eight and the final characteristics of of true worship. And that is this. Worship is practical. We worship with our lives. That is obedience and trust. Not complaining, obedience and trust. It's one thing to raise your hands. It's one thing to get all excited. It's one thing to sing with your voice. It's quite another thing to leave that place of excitement and live consistently the Word of God. Dwight Lyman Moody used to say, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. That is, we need to live the life of God that we're thankful for and worshiping God for. That's, that's part of our worship. You might look at it this way. One of the evidences of true worship is a changed life. Not a complaining heart, a changed life, a grateful heart, and a life in consistency with the Word of God. So when lives have been radically changed, when thieves stop stealing, when adulterers stop the affair, etc., etc., that's the evidence that person has been in contact with the living God. George Smith used to say there are five Gospels, not four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most people will never read the first four. They'll just read your life. And if your life reflects the four Gospels and the Word of God, they'll be compelled because of the God you serve. So, God has redeemed His people. And because He made them, and because He bought them, they're His. And they're grateful. And then they complain. Then they get grateful again. Then they complain. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's our lives. As we close tonight, I want to ask you this very important question. Have you been redeemed? Have you personally come to a place in your life where it's not just religion, it's not just church, you've actually surrendered your life to Christ, you've asked Him to take over your life, you've placed Him at the center of your life? If not, I want to give you that opportunity as we close tonight. Let's pray. Father, as we close the service, we still open our hearts to you. We thank you for the things we've learned. Many of these practical lessons we've already known. They've just been reinforced by reading this chapter. Especially on the nature of coming in contact with the true and the living God. It just makes sense that if we make contact with the true and the living God, that our worship will be true and living. It will reflect the God that we know and that we serve, that we worship. But Lord, in closing tonight, I think of those who may have come who are still very, very thirsty. They find themselves in a wilderness. There's no water. They've tried the wells of this world, but they've come up empty. And we recall the words of Jesus who said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
And so we pray for those who may be here tonight who have never personally surrendered to Jesus. They've come to church. They've looked around. They've looked at other people, but they've not personally given you the keys, the pink slip of their life. I pray, Lord, that you would so invade their space tonight as to bring them to that point of release and surrender. I also pray, Lord, for those who may have made that commitment many years ago. Maybe it was a youth camp. Maybe it was a church service. Maybe it was an evangelistic crusade. But they're not walking with you tonight. They've backslidden. Or they've walked away from you, but you've brought them here tonight to hear this message. And you want to bring them back to your son in forgiveness. As we close this service, and we're going to close with this song, before we do, I'd like to pray for those who want to make the decision to either come back to the Lord or come to the Lord for the first time. But I need to know who I'm praying for. So with our heads bowed, I want you to raise your hand up if tonight you want to surrender your life to Christ. Just raise your hand up so I can see it. You're saying, pray for me. God bless you, ma'am, and you, and you. Right there on my right toward the middle. Anyone else? Slip your hand up. If you're in the auditorium or you're in the balcony or you're in the family room, slip your hand up so I can see it. Maybe move it around a little bit because it's a big room. God bless you and you. The Lord's speaking to you, then move that hand up. Say, skip. Tonight's the night. Pray for me. Anyone else? This is your appointment with God in the family room. Young man, I see your hand. God bless you. Right up in the front, front row, right on. Father, we thank you for those around this auditorium with those hands raised, attached to them, our lives that you love that Jesus died for, that you're doing a work in, and we pray for them, young and old alike or young and older alike, male and female, individuals before you for whom you have a plan. And we pray that your plan would begin tonight and you bring them into a place, Lord, where they recognize your grace and they surrender completely to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand, please? As we sing this final song, we started to sing a song, and then I think we stopped, but as we sing a song, final song, whatever it is, um, as we sing it, if you raised your hand, I want you to leave where you're standing and find the nearest aisle, whether you're in the family room or balcony or auditorium up front, and come right up to the front and allow me to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, the Lord has a plan for you, and you're stepping into that plan tonight. I know you probably didn't think you'd come to church and do what you're doing now, stand up in front of everybody, but I bet, I bet it feels pretty good to know that you're releasing your life back to God, either for the second time or the first time. I don't know what it is, but you're giving God the charge of your life. And here's, here's how it, it works. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'd like you to pray out loud after me from your heart to the Lord. You say this to the Lord and you mean it in your heart. This is you giving God the pink slip. Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. 
I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus died. That He shed His blood for my sin. And that He rose again from the dead. I turn from my sin. I leave my past. I turn to You as my Savior. I want to live for You as Lord. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit. Help me to live for You. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good thinking tonight. Good choice. You made a very important decision and you cooperated with the Lord who chose you and brought you to this place. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.